Today, we hear an amazing story about a construction accident. We wonder if we can just have church all by ourselves. We discover you don't need to have a clean arrest record to be chosen by Jesus for leadership. And Jesus warns us against the sin of humble bragging, all on our way to answering the question, what is expected of a Christian? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. In my last podcast, I ended with a question that was in response to something Jesus said. He told his disciples that they would be recognizable to the world by the sheer reality that they love. His vision was that his followers would have such an abundance of love for the world, for all the people around them, that everyone who encountered them would know they were Christians. So my question at the end of the last podcast was for those of us who claim Christianity as our faith. Do we live in such a way that people who observe us in our daily lives would have no doubt as to our faith? Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's a pretty humbling question. But let me offer one life answer to this question in the form of a story. Many years ago, when I was fairly newly ordained into the priesthood, I was sitting in my office at the church when suddenly a young man, probably 27 to 29 years old, came rushing into my office. He was clearly agitated and out of breath. He wore a tool belt around his waist with the tools of his trade, and he had a hard hat in his hand. And he asked me if he could have a moment of my time, but his question was more like a desperate plea than really a question. Evidently, he'd just come from a construction site near the church. They were working on a new building, and he and his best friend were assigned a task on the steel beams five stories up. And while they were working, his buddy slipped during a moment in which he was not secured, and he fell from the beam. He fell all five stories and landed on a small shed that had been built on the ground below. The gentleman in my office who was telling me this story said, I knew he was dead. No, no way he survived. In that kind of situation, though, you still hold out hope, so I hurried down the best I could and still be safe. I hurried down to be with him. As it turned out, when I got there, he was surrounded by people I work with, and unbelievably, he'd survived. And as we waited for the ambulance, I knelt by his side, and I held his hand, and I told him, I felt guilty that it was him and not me that had fallen. His friend said, no, no, this is the way for it to happen. This is the way I would want it to happen. I would prefer it to be me. You see, I have my faith. And if I have to go today, I'm at peace but you haven't found your faith yet. And I so want that for you while you're still in this life that I would genuinely rather go first. The construction worker in my office said, I 
I don't know what he was talking about. But I'll tell you this, I want to find out. And whatever it is my friend has in his life, I want it. Several Sundays later, we baptized this man. On the Saturday before the service, we met at the church, and I walked him through the service and rehearsal. And after the rehearsal, I offered him a prayer book to take home with him that night in preparation for the service the next day, because he's going to have a number of questions that he'll have to respond to publicly, and I wanted him to feel comfortable during the service. The next day, as we were gathering, getting ready to process in, just before the service, I offered for him to keep the prayer book with him, obviously, so he could read his answers during the service. And he looked at me as if I'd made the strangest offer. He said, I'm getting ready to make the most important commitment of my entire life. I learned all my answers last night. On this day, I won't be reading from a book. I've memorized what's expected of me by heart. So let's take a moment and look at the words, the service we used for that man, and of course we used for every baptism in the Episcopal Church, and see what it tells us about the expectations, the behavioral expectations for a Christian. The commitments made in the baptismal service in the Episcopal Church begin with three questions. Three questions in which in three different ways you renounce evil, and then three more questions in which in three different ways you promise to follow Jesus. After that, the next series of questions are really the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed is an ancient statement of belief that has, for this service, been divided up. And so, each question in answer to the question is a portion of the Apostles' Creed. And the person to be baptized answers with a portion of the creed that corresponds to the question. Then the baptismal service moves away from the questions about belief and into the questions regarding behavior, which I think is what pertains to the question in our discussion today. Each of the following questions that I'm about to read is asked publicly of the person who desires to be baptized, and to each of these he or she says, I will with God's help. Will you persevere in resisting evil, and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord? Will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God in Christ? Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? Will you strive for justice and peace among all people and respect the dignity of every human being? There is a profound belief reflected in these words that Christianity is far more than what you believe, although that's certainly where it starts. Allow me to give you an example. In our denomination, the highest, the most important form of worship we experience is when we bless the bread and the wine, as Jesus taught his disciples to do, and we share them with one another. An interesting and important footnote in our belief about this service is that you have to have at least two people to have this service. The highest form of Christian worship is meaningless if it is not held in the context of community. This is not just us and our strange ways. This idea is taken directly from the words of Jesus. He tells his disciples in the 18th chapter of Matthew, wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name, I will be there. 
And interestingly, Jesus omits the possibility of just one. Christianity is by its very nature intended to be lived out in community. Hence the reason the service in which a person commits to being a Christian places such heavy importance on the treating everyone, absolutely everyone, with dignity and respect. But it would be fair for you to say, wait, Dan, that's what the Episcopal Church says, but what are some things Jesus says about how a follower of his should behave? I would suggest that there are six key characteristics Jesus expects of his followers, and they are honesty, love, forgiveness, sacrifice, humility, and generosity. I'll say them one more time. Honesty, love, forgiveness, sacrifice, humility, and generosity. So let's go through them. Let's talk about honesty. Jesus tells his disciples to let their word be yes or no, and that anything else is unnecessary and wrong. Live with such integrity that there's no need to say, I swear on the Bible. Christian lives should be lived with such truth and integrity that no one ever even needs to ask them a question twice. The next behavior on our list is love, and it's truly a huge portion of the expectation of Christian behaviors. Now, this may seem strange because love seems more like an emotion than a behavioral expectation, so let me explain. The word love, as Jesus talks about it, is very different from the way we use the word in modern language. When we use the word, we're deeply influenced by the notion of love that came out of the Romanticism movement in the late 1700s, and this is a notion that love is an emotion that has a mind of its own and happens or ceases to happen almost outside of our control. So we spend a great deal of time in our culture today talking about falling in love or falling out of love, as if it's something that just happened. As if somehow love is similar to a summer afternoon cloudburst. It will happen, but we never know when or where. But in the Gospel of John, we're told, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And in no reading of this are we to understand that God felt such strong, squishy, emotional affection that he had no choice. But instead, the love Jesus described is a decision to make a pledge and the unwavering conviction to not stray from that commitment. And that's why a better name for the Old Testament and the New Testament would be the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Each is a collection of stories. The story of God committing to humanity and then living into that commitment. I want to read a portion of the fifth chapter of Matthew because I think it will help put Jesus's idea of love into perspective. One bit of context for this passage, Jesus mentions tax collectors. Just know that in his time, tax collectors were seen as traitors. Traitors to the faith and traitors to the nation. They were the worst kind of sinner. Interesting also to remember that one of Jesus's disciples was a tax collector. So no one is beyond the realm of God's love. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and your sisters, what more are you doing than others? The love that Jesus expects from us is not the self-satisfied, warm, squishy kind of love. It's the expectation of moving outside of our comfort zone and treating everyone, absolutely everyone, with respect, especially those we don't want to. We know that part of the plan intended for humanity that's revealed through Jesus is God's forgiveness. We as Christians believe that Jesus revealed God's desire to forgive us and be in relationship with us, but equally important to this equation, and I think often overlooked, is that God expects us to forgive each other as we have been forgiven by God. Listen to another passage from the Gospel of Matthew. As I read this passage, it speaks of taking your gift to the altar, and that was a religious ritual of the Jewish people of the time, and I think for our purposes, we can understand it to mean going to church, entering into prayer, participating in our spiritual lives. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, then come and offer your gift. First, this is really clear about the power of words and how strongly Jesus is against any form of name-calling. This passage is strong and even more than a little threatening. Jesus is that serious about our being reconciled with the people around us. As Christians, it's understood that we are forgiven and that we should forgive those around us. Period. There is a type of Christian theology that's popular today, and it's called the prosperity gospel. This theology stems from particular groups within some Protestant Christian churches. And it's the notion that God has entered into a contract, an agreement with us, and that if we are faithful in our part of the contract, if we are faithful in prayer, study, and giving, then God will make sure that we are richly blessed in this lifetime. Now, I have two things to say about that. First, this theology was certainly a way of seeing the world during particular times of the Old Testament. It was understood that God's relationship with Abraham could be viewed in light of all the property, wealth, and descendants God bestowed upon Abraham. But you would have a hard time backing up this theological understanding with the words and teachings of Jesus himself in the New Testament. Also, perhaps one of the hardest working and therefore in his own way faithful leaders of the very early church was Paul. If ever there were someone we would expect to have an abundance of blessing 
have an easy life, surely it would be Paul. But Paul never became wealthy. He worked hard. He sacrificed much. He was arrested at least three times that we know of and ultimately executed. He even had some sort of medical affliction that plagued him from which he was never healed, although he prayed for healing. So the early church gives us an accurate picture of what the life of a faithful follower of Christ will look like. And it's not abundant worldly blessing and a life on easy street, as it were. Listen to the words of Jesus himself as found in Luke. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. The moment now we start talking about sacrifice, there is an element within the church that says, fine, if I can't be wealthy, I will be famous and revered for my piety and sacrifice. I will be known and revered by all for just how darn holy I am. But Jesus again says, not so fast. I don't want people who want to be leaders or known by those around them. I want followers who want to be servants, not just of mine, but servants of the people who surround them in their lives. Remember, Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Now, moving our way along, humility is a huge part of being a Christian, not the kind of self-practiced, self-effacing humility that's taught within our society. Matter of fact, the youth of our time even have a term for this. It's called humble bragging. Humble bragging is a self-effacing comment that's actually intended to draw attention to something that you're kind of wanting to brag about. So, you know, you go camping in your tent and the person next to you says, I'm so envious of your pup tent that you're sleeping in. I have this 45-foot long luxury RV that's so much work to set up. I wish my life were as easy as yours. That's humble bragging. And that's really what Jesus is talking about in terms of the next passage I'm going to read. And it's what makes humility so difficult. Because maybe we can pretend humility, but learning real humility is a difficult thing. But Jesus reminds us of its importance. Again, back to the Gospel of Matthew. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Finally, there's an expectation that Christians are generous. Not prudently generous, wildly generous. I know there's a sentiment in the world today that we should be cautious in our giving so that we ensure the money we do give is always used appropriately. First, allow me to say, Jesus never says anything like that. That's our wanting to put an additional layer on top of generosity. 
In Luke, Jesus says, give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I think it's fair to say if we're not getting taken advantage of on some sort of regular basis, then we're not probably really living into the model of generosity that Jesus had in mind. One of the other interesting things Jesus says that we actually have studied in psychology and we know now to be true is your money does not follow your heart. Your heart follows your money. Pick the things that you want to care about and give to them. And you'll find that you wind up genuinely caring about them. As Jesus says again in Matthew, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There you have it, the six behaviors that I believe are expected of a follower of Christ. They're honesty, love, forgiveness, sacrifice, humility, and generosity. But to be honest, I think love leads these. All of the others are arguably byproducts of love. And so it is by far the most important. Let's go back to Paul and hear from him what he had to say about this. I'll leave you with a passage from 1 Corinthians that speaks so powerfully and eloquently about Christian love. And notice something in this passage, as I said before. In Christianity, love is primarily behavioral, not emotional. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, In faith, hope, and love abide, and of these three, the greatest of these is love. That's all for today. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Please feel free to get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you through email. Follow me on Twitter. Just remember that both are SkyPilot with three T's. That's S-K-Y-P-I-L-O-T-T-T. My email is skypilot at gmail.com and my Twitter handle is at skypilot.
Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions. Thank you.